Hey, Benedict. Hey, Daniel. We have a guest today, Ben from Tuple. Another Ben. Two Bens. Two Bens. Hello. Hey, Ben. Hi. How's it going, guys? So the URL is tuple.app, right? That's right. Yes. You're the CEO. So we have another startup founder on here, but you're a bootstrapped, a fully bootstrapped startup founder. And now you're talking to two people who used to be and are no longer. And I think that's why you're interested in doing this, right? Yeah, you and I were chatting, and I was kind of curious about some of the decisions and some of the fallout and how it's all feeling, because it's a different way of doing business than we chose. And so I'm just curious, what's going on with you? Yeah, and so you Definitely. offered to do, you you said you would probe us if we wanted, and I said, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I hope I phrased it better than that. <laughs> I think you did. Okay. But yeah, so you kind of wanted to ask us some questions that also, you're a listener of the podcast, which we appreciate. And so I think it's yeah. nice to to understand what a listener, who is also a founder of a company, has on their mind about what maybe we're not getting into. Yeah, this is like customer development if the customer came on the call and only asked you questions. Yeah, I like that, though. There's something good there. Yeah, maybe. Well, maybe we should get in the first topic, which is, well, you wish the podcast was longer. Yes. So I'm a sucker for bootstrapper podcasts. Um, like I listen to Bootstrapped Web, the occasional Indie Hackers episode. I, I make a Bootstrapper podcast. I listen to a, a private podcast a couple of friends make that is that. And I just, I'm sort of a sucker for two founders talking about the businesses they're working on. And so I've noticed that the two of you, like I, I don't remember how I found the two of you originally, but I've been listening to the podcast and enjoying it. And it's, uh, it's terse. And sometimes I'm like, I can listen to more of this. And you just kind of like, all right, that's it. See you goodbye. <laughs> So that's my first bit of customer feedback is you can you can go deeper if you want. I would I wouldn't stop listening. I wonder how many people would stop listening. That's the question. Probably nobody. It's probably Yeah, fun. I mean at the end of the day really like, you should make the thing that you think is good because you'll attract the audience that's into that and the ones that don't think it's cool will leave and that's fine. That's the beauty of podcasts, I suppose, and art in general. Um, but let me ask you some questions. I was going to defend the terseness, but it's fine. Well, no. No, no, go ahead. Hit me with the hit me with the terseness. Well, I think a big thing that we want is like a thing that is actually consumable as a historical record where it's, oh, if someone joins the company now, they can realistically go back and listen to the podcast. They can understand the company history and kind of get caught up to a certain degree or kind of understand our perspective and where we've been, where we're going. And that just becomes a lot harder when it's like long episodes. And mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have your employees done that to your knowledge? Everyone has listened to a significant amount of it, if not all of it. A few have listened to all of it. Some cool. still listen now that they're employees, which is interesting too. Mm. And I actually have noticed it's a signal to me, like a positive signal that somebody's listened to it because it means that they're interested in the company enough to go dive in and click around the website and be like, oh, there's a podcast. I'm curious what these guys are thinking about. They want to know if we're smart and are doing our job well. And it's right. a good signal they're diving in, right? Totally. Yeah. So they're probably listening to this saying, Ben, please don't encourage them to go longer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I still have 20 more to go. <laughs> yeah. All right. First okay. question. Hit us First with question. Okay. So you're bootstrapping along and at some point the decision was made, you know what? We should raise money for this thing. We're onto something. There's a lot of potential here. We feel constrained by capital. Was there like a very clear decision point for the two of you or something clicked and it like became like, okay, we, we should probably do this. Or was it more like, was it a thing you were dancing around for a while? I think it's something that was in the back of our minds for a long time. 
And we kind of poke at it occasionally, but then I think it got concrete when we had one specific call that I remember. With each other, you mean? Yeah, yeah, with each other, where I remember because I was like pruning some plants in the backyard while we were talking. And it's a very like, it's in my memory palace. Oh yeah, backyard, that's where I had the call about raising money. So I think it was something that was floating around. So it wasn't a decision that came out of nowhere. But then there was a call where it kind of crystallized that it was the right thing to do in both of our opinions at that time. But we had most of our discussions around raising, if we would, were not raising traditional VC. They were all up until that right. moment. Oh, calm, you know, earnest capital at the time or, you know, indie VC or tiny seed. We talked to tiny seed. We knew Tyler Tringus a bit and we, he was on our little monthly updates. Like we had a call with him. We had calls with angels. Like we'd send a monthly or every other month update to people with the option that we would maybe try to raise angel money from them. And then we were talking about it occasionally a few times, semi-seriously around, should we raise a few hundred grand? And we were leaning that way. And then it changed. But but why? Why were we talking about that? Or why did we change? I'm curious about both. Like where, where was the initial motivation behind raising? But from like the, like one of my questions was, why not like Calm or Tiny Seed or something like that? Maybe that's a good place to start. Like when did you switch between from that to traditional venture? I think I'll, I'll say up front, I think both of those are not, a great deal like for the founder now i think for many founders they're a good deal but i think for us and the connections we had and the network we had and what we believe is the possible outcome that eros has being a very large one it's a bad deal and i think our deeper understanding of maybe some of the mechanisms for funding and our access to them gave us other options and we sort of realized through talking to them that, well, if we did go raise some money, a smaller amount and on the scale they would give us, we would probably do it on a safe note, the Y Combinator standard C documents, you know, which is what we raised our round on. We just mm -hmm. raised just under 3 million instead of 300 grand, like we thought about. So the amount changed, but we realized even before that, that most likely the best scenario that gave us the most optionality and probably was fairly aligned with the routes that we might take it would just be a standard, simple well-worn path of a safe note. What makes a safe better for you than the agreements that the other two were offering you? So from one, Tiny Seed, from what I understand and what they explain, generally takes equity. So they buy roughly 10% or so of your company. There's a lot to dive into on both of these. We don't need to get into all of it. But yeah, they roughly yeah, yeah. take 10%. And for us, that was just for the valuation you'd get for that amount of money, not worth it. That's a lot of company to give up for the amount of money. For... Calm Company Fund now, formerly Earnest Capital, they have a unique mechanism. It's similar to a safe, but modified to allow them to take equity or take returns over time while the company is running and then have say cap. My feeling was that for what we were trying to do, we would be incentivized to pay them back a multiple while we are running, uh, running mm. the company because the incentive for the structure of it is to pay them back faster. We felt we deserved a higher valuation. And actually Tyler told us he thought our valuation that we got, we offered the chance for him to jump in our round. And he thought the valuation was too high. And it's fair because we are building a different type of thing than his companies. But yeah, we just generally didn't feel the incentive for what we wanted to do and try was aligned, but we're trying a higher risk path now. And we kind of knew that. That for me is what it boils down to is when we were considering taking money from those sources, it was when we were approaching the business as a bootstrap business. Then when we decided to change that approach, or we realized that approach was more fitting to the problem that we were trying to solve in the business that we were trying to build, that is then when we kind of switched to the other mindset. 
And that's when we said, oh, well, we need a lot more money. Like we, that's the, the conversation that Benedict remembers is where we said, oh, we're not going to raise 300 grand. We need to raise two to 4 million. Like we need to raise a traditional, whatever, a quote unquote traditional seed round of funding and that we actually are going for a bigger thing. Okay. Cause, and so that was because you looked at the situation and said, we don't want to hire two people. We want to hire 20 people because there's a huge opportunity here and we want to run after it as fast as we can. Well, not 20, like five or, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) five, but yeah, I think it's very hard to, it's VC funding is a tool. Bootstrapping is a tool. Bootstrapping is a great tool to solve markets that are not so big that someone can basically take over the entire market. Bootstrapping is great for niches within a market. And this is like, you know, what those funds hammer on all the time. Oh, we found this person. They had a unique insight into a certain market, and that allows them to deliver value to this market that no one else is really interested in doing. What we're pursuing is something that's so broad and so universal and so, you know, a thing that basically every SaaS company deals with. And the market is so new that no no niches have really formed. If It would be one thing if it was like, oh, here's this category that we're going into. Here's the specific subset. We have the specific knowledge. We can bootstrap a business here because we know how to serve that sub that niche really well. This is much more like, okay, this is such a broad opportunity and it's an early market. And so the people who build successful businesses here at this point in time will be VC-backed businesses. In 10 years, I think there will be great bootstrapping opportunities when customer success is mm. much more settled. It's a much more developed category. And the role has developed enough because that's the thing is like even in customer success, it's what customer success is, is still kind of being defined and the roles within it and kind of the jobs within it and the tool stack within it. And so what we're trying to do is be one of those tools that kind of grows with that initial wave of the market, there is no kind of established market that we can kind of niche into as a bootstrap business is kind of how I would phrase it. The other side of that, a lot of the expectations that, you know, sale prospects that we would talk to on sales calls and our existing customers had for us were very high, like what they wanted from their product. They demanded effectively a, a larger team than just Benick and I, and they, didn't like talking to the founders necessarily on sales calls. Like it was a negative signal to have me be there being like, Hey, come, I'm the founder. Come give us your money and put all of your customer. It was like, we don't want, are you going to be around? We don't know if you guys are around, you know? And so it's a high value problem and they didn't really trust us in the solution enough, but they also wanted a lot out of the product. And so it like the shape of what the market also wanted from the product as well as the shape of the market dictating what we needed to build was something that needed more resources and more time. Within a niche market, it is a positive signal to see someone bootstrap because as soon as someone in a niche market raises money, you go, oh gosh, they're going to make this too big of a thing. They're going to try and satisfy too many people. It's not going to be big enough and they're going to shut down in a couple of years. In our problem or the problem that we're trying to solve is the exact opposite where it's like, oh, here's this new function that I'm trying to define with my company. I need to bet on the company that's going to grow and be the thing in five years, 10 years, and it'll be big where like I'm running a huge portion of my department through this tool. So it's kind of like the opposite problem. Interesting. So so the bet is sort of more and more companies will realize that this onboarding is critical and supporting it with software leads to better outcomes. And it's not a niche thing. It's a broad thing. It's like a lot of like all the B2B SaaSs will just do this as a standard thing if you are right and and things work out. Yes. And within that, it is the idea that we actually believe that like we sold to our investors and believe ourselves that onboarding is a wedge into 
a larger customer lifecycle mm. product. We, we say two things, onboarding never ends. So that's the thing, like we look at onboarding as a continuous thing that you do with your customers. It's not just something you do in the first, you know, like as tooltips, as somebody comes into your product, it's a continuous thing, but it is also a wedge into customer lifecycle tooling and customer success tooling and everything that happens post sale with your customer. And so we look at it, there being a lot of opportunity in that category, and we need to kind of stake it out a little bit. Interesting. So I just hired um, a head of sales and success, and we're doing more onboarding of enterprise type customers. So I wonder when, I wonder when we will feel this pain or like come the light bulb will go off for us and we'll go, oh, hey, we should, we should do that thing too. Odds are you start doing it like in your CRM or spreadsheet or whatever. And it's like, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're sending all these emails back and forth because you, he, this person is selling very, like you mentioned the other day, Fortune 5 or Fortune 10 company using you all now. And it's the amount of steps and process that goes into getting them successfully rolled out. And you and I were talking last week, Tuples lives or dies by the successful rollouts of how many of the seats they paid for, start using it and right. buy into it over the course of that right. function. And there's actually a whole skill and process to making sure people have a successful rollout. And we've focused on the high touch end of the scenario so far, because it's tricky and hard and whatever. And it's where we see a lot of value, but we expect to be able to have that be something that like we shift the product over time to also mm. support medium and low touch onboarding and implementation and all this sort of stuff. Got it. Yeah. I think I'm a, probably a future convert on this space. Like I'm, I'm like an in progress convert, I would say, because in the beginning, so we're three ish years old now. And mm -hmm. in the beginning, you're just like trying to make something that works. And so it's just like exciting when the thing doesn't crash. And they're trying to get to a certain revenue level. How many people can we get in the door and like using the thing? And now we've hit a certain size and scale. And I'm starting to look at like, okay, like what, where are the leaks in this funnel? We can start like optimizing this thing. And it's like, wow, uh, a lot of customers sign up and then never use the thing at all. Or they'll like on a 10 person team, they'll invite, you know, a bunch of people and some fraction just never get, get going. The and crazier thing is leaks. when people pay for it and then they don't use it. And you're like, what? Oh yeah. I mean, there's a ton of that. And so it's becoming increasingly, I, I can see the dollar cost and, and also just like the bad customer experience that it causes. So I, I think I'm now turning, we're starting to have the scale and also just the time and the space to be like, okay, let's not just try to make any engine that works. Let's tune this engine that is working and make it more, more efficient. It's an interesting problem that we're dealing with, which is we are building for our customer's customer, the tuple customer, the tuple end user. So we're trying to figure out how to do that well. And our customers serve a lot of different types of customers. So we're also building for all of them and the different types of ways that they buy and implement things and do all that. But the ultimate goal here is when we help them do what they want, which is I'm buying Tuple because I have this outcome or goal or something in mind. If I achieve that more effectively and Arrows helps them do that, they won't hopefully know really that Arrows exist. It's we try to stay in the background. We don't want to like intermediate your relationship with your customer. But if we are helping you take more of your customers to those outcomes, like you're happier because your customers are happier. But even further than that is we're actually a revenue driving tool. More and faster rollout means faster expansion of your customers. So more seats are bought, better retention. And then you start looking hopefully at arrows at some point as a tool you can never get rid of because that's the thing that drives revenue for us. It's not like a time saver for you or your salesperson. On your jobs page, one mm -hmm. of the sentences is, our goal is to build a very big company that we wish we had the chance to work at. 
And the second part, sure, that makes sense. But why is your goal to build a very big company? That probably changed when we decided to raise money. I mean, that was part of the decision was we think we've stumbled into building something that requires itself to be fairly big. And so now that we are in that opportunity, we want to try to see it through. But yeah, I think we're trying to maintain our options. We are trying to be very intentional. We raised this first round of money very intentionally. But each time we, and we will likely raise multiple rounds of funding again. And every time we do that, we try to be intentional about what we are attaining with that and also what we're giving up. And I think we are on the path to raising a lot of money and being a big company if we do that well. But we also want to make sure we do that intentionally. I think it's also so that people are aligned with what they're getting into, where I think if you listen to early episodes of the podcast, you might get the wrong idea of what kind of business you would be joining. And so I think mm -hmm. that's why on the jobs page, it's like, to be clear, this is what we're trying to do. And this is the aspiration. And being on the same page on that is important. Gotcha. Related, we did like a exercise with the company where I sent out some questions or prompts to them and they sent them back. And then today in our all hands, we went over everybody's replies and two people mentioned the, where do we want to be in 12 months? We want to be close to profitability. And I was like, to be clear, we want to have a route to profit profitability, but I don't think we will be profitable. And I don't think we are, our goal is to be profitable in the near term. We are actually planning to spend and hire and grow in this format, but we want to have a route to it. So that way we are not putting ourselves in a tricky scenario where we can't always achieve it if we need to, if the market changes or something about the business changes fundamentally. But like, we've had to like make sure people understand that as well to Benedict's point. So it is important. So people understand if we are not profitable in a year or two, and they joined us thinking that they don't think that that's failure. Like we actually think that is us building a very large machine that is just front loading expenses basically. So the goal is to build a very successful company and a big enough one to handle the success or like the, to do the things required to be successful. Is that a fair restatement to of the To solve thing? the problem for customers in the way that they need it to be solved. That's, I think, really what it comes down to is, yeah, that it requires a certain scale. How are you guys feeling about these questions so far? Good. I thought you were going to ask harder stuff. This is <laughs> the stuff we've thought about so much. That, like, this is really fun, but it's you're, you and I talked about this that, it's hard for Benedict and I think to get into it on the podcast in this way because it's hard to frame it in the way that you're thinking about it. And I think the reframing or the asking it in a different way and, and poking at it helps us get into some of the, the nuance of how we came to these decisions or thoughts, which was slow and fast. You know, it was like over time, a lot of discussions and all of a sudden it happened in like a few days. Like we had that discussion where Benedict was trimming his plants in the backyard and two weeks mm -hmm. later, we had a term sheet from a VC. You know, it was like, mm -hmm. it happened very quickly when we decided it all unfolded very slowly. So it's interesting to unpack a lot of it. How did you guys split the equity? Should we talk about it? I don't know. We've never really, did we talk? I don't, I don't care. Benedict. We're 50-50, Benedict and I. Well, we were. And then, so I was running a design studio. Benedict joined up on a lot of those projects. We ran them all through my studio, but he had his own separate S-Corp and I had my LLC. And then when we created Arrows as an LLC originally, it was all 50-50 because we were expecting to be bootstrapped. And so we created an LLC. And then not even six months later, we're like, oh, crap, we need to convert to a C-Corp and all of that. We're going to take on funding. And now we both have equal ownership, but it's less because we have now funding and an employee option pool and, and employees are getting equity and 
we're trying to be generous with that in a way that's helpful and also buys them in on the success of arrows. We try to pay people well, but also like there's a lot of the upside is in, in equity. And that equity yeah. for everyone, I guess, is or is most likely is going to be only valuable in the event of an acquisition or an IPO. Is that right? Is that the end game in your minds? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely other routes, but yeah, in those, I mean, people can, yes, future funding rounds, people can sell some, there'll be lots of routes for liquidity on that in some portion, maybe not all of it, but there will be routes, but yes, it has to be us growing to, you know, we have a high valuation. We have to exceed that. And then if we raise more money, keep exceeding further, higher and higher valuations through yeah an IPO or acquisition or some maturing of the company. Was the 50-50 split easy to come to? Did you start there? Yeah, I don't think we ever really... Do you remember having yeah. a conversation about it beyond just like, we're in agreement on this, right? Yeah, I think we started there and we ended there. I think... <laughs> It'd be weird if past, we moved off and came back. In the past, like pretty much all past projects and companies or things I've done have been 50-50. And I think that is a better way to do it. I think even if within certain moments it can feel like it's not 50-50, I think over the long run, it usually boils back down to 50-50. And I think it, it, if you're approaching something as a partnership, splitting up the equity as a partnership is the way to do it. I was just saying, I can understand why you would maybe approach it differently if you came into it with different resources or different things or different commitment levels. But I, yeah, I think where we were and how we were starting, it was pretty obvious. Like, I don't think there was a discussion because it was just, we're both giving all of our time and resources and energy to this. And we kind of need each of the other in a lot of ways to do it. All right. Hypothetical for you. If both of you were going to retain all of your stock, but you both had to resign and step back and let me run the company instead. So you're motivated to have this succeed, but you have, you'll have no direct control and you had a couple minutes to guide me and point me in the right direction, what are the most important things I need to know? What an interesting question. But the funny thing, the first thing you said, I was like, oh, well, we're investing schedules now. So would we, would that accelerate or what? Yeah, sure. <laughs> you've, you've got sizable equity in a company that I now have to run. It's tough because it's such a short period of time that you'd pretty much have to point you in the direction of what you should look into, not actually convey any specific information. There's not one thing about onboarding or our understanding of customer success that is some secret gem that like we need to implant in your mind that will lead to success. It's more like, okay, what are the three most directionally important things that you can keep taking it in the direction that we think is the most promising? I would probably say go talk to the people we have on our team. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. We hired two of the two customer facing people are both people who, one, we met Kim because she was doing a demo of Arrows for the company she was at before and then asked to join. And then Sherelle was a, cool. one of our early That's advisors. That's a great sign. Yeah, it was a good sign. Yeah. And she now runs sales for us effectively. She's business operations. She won't stay in sales, but she talks to every you know customer. Mm -hmm. And she liked how I was doing sales. That was the other part of it compared to mm -hmm. she had done demos of other products that are sort of alternatives to Arrows, but... Okay, she, so time is ticking and I have to run this thing. Is there anything else I should know other than talk to the team? That's a, It's a tough one because I do think, to Benedict's point, a lot of our perspective, I don't think you could just slot in somebody else for us. It's a two years, two and a half years of ideas and iteration and a lot of my experience running internal tools at Twilio and Benedict's experience doing games and development together and 
the thing that we think we are building is different than a lot of the other competitive products out there. Mm. And it's not so obvious yet. And so I think we are trying to lay a lot of the groundwork right now to get us there. But I think without that perspective and time and opinion of how we think the category will evolve and what customers need, somebody would likely come in and then turn our product into something that looks similar to the other competitive products. I would say Mm. in that vein, I think maybe the one thing that I would say that's specific is always focus on the customer's customer. Don't focus on the customer. Mm. Because I think that's also like the thing that a lot of other tools do is they're very focused on the people who are buying the success managers who are running these processes, but they don't consider as much the people who are actually interacting with it, their customer's customer when really that's the important person. And that's kind of where we think all of our focus needs to be because that's the person who is really the end user because it's about them getting onboarded. That's a good one. I like that one. We do bring that up in a lot of calls. To be clear, I don't think I'm going to do as good a job as you two would do. <laughs> I, mean, I, I know to, this is an impossible question. It remains but, to be seen how well of a job we do. So, <laughs> Of course. What's keeping you up at night right now? What are you worrying about? That's a good one. I actually had a hard time falling asleep last night. Usually I'm like, I sleep pretty well. And the last time I actually had anxiety before sleep. For me, it's software quality and shipping fast enough. Mm-hmm. Those are the, the two things I worry about. Benedict and I were talking about that, that, that last week a little bit. We have our weekly call tomorrow, so I'm sure that's a topic we will talk about together. The other side is marketing, having enough demos, enough leads. So we are starting to plan a marketing hire. So that's number two. Basically, we frame it as the thing that Arrows is holding Arrows back as a company most is the product being underdeveloped. We need to build a lot more. The thing that is the biggest gap for the Arrows team is our lack of marketing expertise internally. And we've done an okay job, Benedict and I, up until now, building awareness, but it's just not uh, scalable and repeatable enough, and neither of us can give it enough attention. We need, given that we are building a, what we believe is going to be a big company, we need that expertise in-house, and we can afford to invest in that earlier than we would if we were a bootstrapper. It's still a bootstrap company. And I think that's the thing that we still have to shed at times, um, is that bootstrap mentality of, oh, we can go do this instead of like, oh, we can get an expert to help us with this. Do you worry that you might achieve a middling success, like a success that would have been huge, like great for a bootstrapper um, or great for like most companies, um, but then is a disappointment in the VC land? I think that was a much bigger concern before we raised money. And then when we did it and we met the people and we talked to people and we realized, understood the mechanisms better, we were, I think it's still a concern, but I don't think it's going to be a problem for us. If anything, we bought into that being a reality. Right. I think you worry about it in a different way. Before taking funding, you worry about it as a question of, should we take funding? But once you take funding, it's more like you worry about it as a failure mode more than a thing that you'll have to navigate because you kind of have set the parameters of what you're trying to do. And I think back to that idea of being intentional about every time we raise money. If we found middling success now, we'd have a lot of mechanisms to either decide what to do with the company in a variety of ways. There's a lot of optionality there. We have a lot of time to still decide if what route Arrows ends up being on. But even as we continue to raise more in future rounds of funding, we will do that based on more confidence in the trajectory it's on. And even if we do not achieve the high valuation or the high outcome that we want with each of those rounds, there still be routes for it to be like a happy outcome for us. I do think the thing we used to say to people all the time when we didn't 
for why we weren't raising money is we wanted to own a profitable like bootstrap business for 10, 20 years. We just wanted to have a cash flow generating business for a really long time. We still want that now. We still want to keep doing this for a really long time. We enjoy it. We we're old friends. We enjoy working together, but we also know that if we do not get to that point, we'd also rather know that sooner. So we're kind of pressure testing or stress testing this uh, category and idea that we have faster. Right. Cause I think the fear of middling success is almost worse to a certain degree with bootstrapping because you can kind of drag it out much longer if you approach it in a certain route where there's an opportunity cost, especially in software, when there is so much opportunity that you stick with something when maybe there's other exciting things out there. You talked about wanting to ship faster. What is, what's stopping you from moving faster? You, you, you must not be capital constrained at this point, right? So, so what's, why, not, why aren't you going faster? Because now we need to figure out how to make a larger team fit together and work together. And until we get to that point, we're still kind of in that initial sorting that out phase. And I think mm. it, it, it is a thing where when it's just two of us, we can do a lot. Then we kind of took a dip in shipping where, okay, now we're raising money. And then the dip continues because you're like, okay, now we're putting effort into hiring people. And then the dip continues because they just started and they don't know what's going on. And now we're kind of like at that point where it's like, okay, the team is in place. We're starting to figure it out. We're starting to lay the groundwork. We're starting to figure out the processes and we're starting to get to that point. So it's like now, and I think part of that anxiety is like also you can kind of, it's not that we weren't shipping at all, but it was very slow when all of this other stuff was happening. But now you're kind of at the point where it's like, okay, we there is no more other thing that is taking our time. And so now we really need to figure it out and nail it. And I think that's because now we recognize that we're at that point where it's like, okay, now is where we're laying the groundwork where this is what establishes the next six months, uh, 12 months. This is where we're laying that base speed and we need to make sure it's nailing that right balance of speed, quality, and solving what people needed to solve. All of that. And also, I think we'll always just feel that we could be shipping yeah, faster. It's too. like a bit of both trying to be patient. And while you're inherently impatient, as most founders are, you know, you want everything faster, but it's, but the reality has been the stuff that he laid out. So are you intentionally running? I, I, I imagine right now you're running intentionally, not profitably. Like you're, you've hired ahead of revenue growth by a good amount and are, yeah. Yeah. How, bit. how at your current growth rate, will you run out of money first or will you hit profitability first? We would run out of money first where we're at right now, but the plans we have between now and the end of the year, which feel very attainable, but are still, we're also trending slightly behind them. This month is slow. Last month was pretty good. And then this month has been slow. And we believe where we'll be by the end of the year would hit, by the end of this year, we'll be at a trajectory, which we believe would, you know, put us on the path to break even next year. But as soon as we hit that level where we plan to be this year, we will start hiring again above target. Mm-hmm. You know, so like it's a constant, like kind of moving. We are seven people total right now, us and five employees. We'll probably hire a marketing person. So we'll be eight total. And, you know, as soon as we get the, you know, we, we look at it as we're building a machine. This is like constantly how startup founders who are raised money are thinking about it. Like we're putting the pieces together and, as I'm starting to feel some consistent momentum and, and motion forward progress, you start adding more to it because you're like, okay, now we're, we're not just trying to get to this steady state and then hit profitability and then keep increasing profitability. You're trying to grow faster and get to the next level a little bit faster. And you definitely hire much faster than maybe the company necessitates. And that's 
both challenging from like a founder standpoint, but also an individual employee standpoint. Cause sometimes we hire somebody and it's like, well, there's not a clear, fully developed role for them yet. You know, like you were drowning in sales. And mm-hmm. so you go hire a salesperson. I was drowning in sales for a while, but we're not as much anymore. And so it's okay. Well, part of that person being here is we need to free up the time to actually develop, free up my time a bit so I can focus on product and, you know, things like that. That's my dream too. It's, hap- it's, it's starting to happen. Okay. So is, is the biggest opportunity you feel like you're neglecting or haven't taken advantage of yet? Is it, is it on the marketing side then? No, still product, I think. I think it's we just, do, it's I just think far from where you want it to be. It's, it's not, yeah, quite, I think it's not doing it for the customers yet. Come at the problem from the product perspective. And I think we just see like as so many companies have this issue, this problem that we're trying to solve for them. And it just feels, we just want to get there so badly. We, yeah, it's more companies coming inbound, more customers coming inbound just gives us more data and ability to keep building the product, but it's not really the biggest challenge. Got it. It's definitely like we, we serve some customers very well, but the majority of people we talk to, it's, oh, we need it to be this next phase of where you're, you guys are building towards mm-hmm. the next, like a more of a platform versus a little onboarding tool, which is, you know, I think if we knew we were going to be a, a VC funded product the whole time, we probably would have built things very different, but we built a bootstrapped style product and then discovered that people wanted the VC funded like platform version of the product. And now we're going through that transition to a different type of product that can deliver a, a more powerful sort of experience for our which is part of okay. why I feel slow at times. You know, it's like we are shifting also the product in a in some fundamental ways. I have a hunch that like having done this a bit myself and talked to a lot of other people that product dissatisfaction and the belief that we have to just have to keep making the product better is a very seductive and maybe unavoidable sense. No, you're right. I, th- I think that's the thing we talk about often. Is that a thing that it does not solve all problems, mm-hmm. but we are not, we don't have zero. We're not in a situation where nobody is coming to arrows, but we yeah. are in a situation where the people who are coming are not consistently enough being sold and then rolling us out to the scale at which they wish to roll us out. Like we will have people who come and be like, oh, we want to buy like 20 seats. And then they're like, oh, actually, only this one person on our team could use it for their specific you know, need that mm. we, the rest of the team is going to stay doing spreadsheets or something, or we're going to mm. check out this other tool. So it's like, we, we do need more inbound traffic and inbound leads, but we also simultaneously need the product to be better or better serve the bigger companies. Is there anything that you were hoping I would ask you about that I haven't yet that you want an excuse to talk about? Benedict, anything? I can't think of anything, no. No, I was wondering how much you would talk about, you'd be curious about funding versus the state of the business now and then where we're going. It's definitely interesting having shifted from a bootstrap company to a funded company before the product was like fully matured. You know, we went through like a learning process. We almost look at, there's this whole term now, it's kind of silly, but it's called pre-seed, the smaller few hundred grand rounds that people raise to go explore the product. We essentially look at it as we skipped doing that. And we went right into a seed round and now we are still undergoing that transition. But we ended up in a interesting scenario where we've been public and launched as we were a bootstrap company, which was actually very beneficial to us in terms of mm-hmm. a company and building up our name and helped us with fundraising. But then now we're trying to do a bit of both, maintain the existing customers that are coming in while building the next version of the product evolution of the company. And 
yeah, I think that's also part of why we've been maybe quiet publicly too, is we're doing a lot more now than before we were like building off of, you know, the awareness that people had of us and we're generating that ourselves. And now we're trying to build a more repeatable machine. And so it's, it's definitely like refounding, if anything, in a lot of ways. Well, for what it's worth, when I first saw your friends thing that you did, like those mm. custom specific pages for people thanking them, I thought it was super clever and really impressive. I think I even emailed Tyler actually and said, invest in these people. I'm an investor in Calm. And I was like, these, these guys seem savvy. That's funny. So I'm optimistic about your ability to figure out these future problems and get the product where you want it. And I'm rooting for you. And so please keep podcasting and sharing <laughs> the story because it's fun to follow along. Thank nice. you. That's very nice. Yeah. yeah. Where, to be fair, I told you last week, and I think it's worth saying publicly, it's been very fun to watch you guys too. I remember starting, I mean, you were all talking about building things somewhat publicly, but you were kind of talking about what you're building with Tuple. And I remember Screen Hero. And it's been very cool to see how not only did you all build something very great pre-pandemic, but then now how that's accelerated the business. And now you're starting to dive into a lot of these same problems that we're dealing with, but from a different perspective, a bootstrapped angle, plus a lot more revenue. And it's um, it's very fun to watch. And so I think it'll, it's fun to lean on you a little bit to learn from how you guys are approaching things. So, Well, thanks. Yeah, we're about at the same size now, I, I'm noticing, uh, team-wise. So we, we should trade some notes. Yeah, Because exactly. this is hard. <laughs> Running a That's team right. is not easy. Two to five, and then now seven, eight is, they're all three, like, very different. Yeah. Well, thanks, Ben. So awesome yeah. to have you. Yeah, that was thanks fun. So thanks for letting me grill you in public. <laughs> and so your podcast is Art of Product. Yeah, the Art of Product. If you want and more of this, Twitter? this style, if you want hot takes. And then do a quick sell on Tuple. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. So Tuple is an app for doing remote pair programming on Mac OS and soon to be Linux. So if you are writing code with people and you want to have full remote control with low latency and super high quality for looking at tiny coding fonts, we made an app in C++ that's super tailored for that. And so maybe check it out, tuple.app. Awesome. Thanks. Catch you It's been a pleasure. Week. Yeah. Thanks, guys. See you around.